Thank you, praise team, and Casey for leading us this morning. Church, wonderful singing. Please turn your Bibles to Acts in chapter 24, if you will. Acts 24. For those of you, I was talking to Amy about this last night. She said, you got to be careful because a lot of people in the room may not have heard of this person. So for those of you who are 40 and up, okay, sorry to discount everyone else. For those of you who are 40 and up, I'm going to... I'm going to say a phrase from a, an oft, often repeated phrase from a well-respected individual, and I want to see if you know who, this, who said this phrase, okay? So here it is. We'll take a short recess and come back and give you my decision. You know who that is? Who said that? That's right. It was Judge Wapner from the People's Court, a pioneer of reality courtroom television. And since then, there have been many courtroom television shows, and frankly, both that are reality and some that are just dramas. Not sure what it is about human nature, but we like to see people standing trial. We like to watch real-time proceedings and hear verdicts straight out of the mouth of the judge or the jury, right? We do. These people watch these shows. Now, Interestingly enough, rarely does that same interest and excitement carry over when you get a jury summons, right? No one is really excited about that. In fact, our friend Daniel Coward had jury duty this year. Uh, They actually started on Monday, which I thought was a holiday. uh, The church was open, but you know, Columbus Day. And he had a report for jury duty and... They didn't even give him sympathy points for having to use that little foot scooter he's using all the time. And he was actually put on the jury. So we didn't see much of Daniel this week as he was doing his civic duty on jury. Well, the truth of the matter is, it's not just in the courtroom that people stand trial. There is the trial of public opinion. People who hold to views that are outside of what popular culture and opinion would determine are judged on a regular basis. This happens all the time. And this principle is increasingly true for, the fo- for followers of Jesus Christ, for those who would hold to historic Christian principles on things like morality and things like sexuality and things like gender. Let's just be honest. The mainstream society celebrates immorality and those who promote immorality. And in our world, everyone gets an opinion, and it's okay to express your opinion, and it's not okay to challenge those opinions unless your opinions correspond to Scripture or historic Christian principles. Then you're not allowed to express it, and you are allowed to challenge it, and the verdict's already been given. You're bigoted, you're intolerant, you're uninformed, and you're closed-minded. In fact, just recently, I... I was listening to uh, Al Mohler and the, the daily briefing that he puts out every weekday, and he talked about a newly appointed CEO of an Australian league, Australian rules football league in Melbourne, Australia. He was hired one day, he was fired the next day. You know why he was fired? He was fired because the company found out that he is a member of and belongs to and actually serves on the board of a evangelical Christian church. 
The sole reason for him being fired because he is part of a church and the church teaches views that go contrary to what the, quote, popular opinion is on sexuality and gender and morality today. And the point is, we should get used to this because it's just gonna become more and more common. So as we look to Acts chapter 24 today, we're gonna see Paul standing trial. But as we look beyond Acts chapter 24 and to our own lives, we need to understand that as we live faithfully before our Lord, we too are going to stand trial in the eyes of the world. From the text today, we're going to glean some helpful tips as we live in a world that is increasingly hostile to truth and righteousness. So we'll be in Acts chapter 24 today. I'd like for you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. We'll begin by reading the first nine verses together. Acts 24, beginning in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is the ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Let's pray. Lord, give us understanding now into your word. And equip us, Lord, to live faithfully for you in a world that is increasingly hostile to truth, to righteousness, to you. We pray these things asking that you would respond in the power of the Spirit in our lives. Amen. You may be seated. Well, unexpectedly, you recall last week, Paul was accompanied by soldiers to Caesarea. His nephew, of all people, had overheard a plot of the Jews to kill Paul. They were going to manipulate the Roman tribune, uh, Claudius Lysias, get Paul out into the open and then kill him. Well, Paul's nephew tells Paul this. Paul says to the guard who was over him that this guy has something to tell the tribune. The tribune hears him and then orders Paul to be escorted up the coast to Caesarea where he would be transferred to uh, the governor there, Governor Felix, and he, of course, sent a letter on with, with Paul, with the army, the soldiers who were accompanying him, and kind of explained to him the situation and what was happening there. So after inquiring a bit about Paul, Felix agrees to give Paul a trial. And here we pick up in verse 1, learning that five days later, this delegation from the council of the Jews uh, including Ananias, the high priest, make their way to Caesarea, and right away they go on the offensive, and they're going to begin to accuse Paul and present their case to him. And the first thing we learn from this is we should expect to be maligned and misrepresented by the world. Church, we should expect to be maligned and misrepresented 
by the world. So in verse two, we learn that the council had hired this spokesman to tell us he was an orator or a lawyer and he would be the one who would make their case before the official, before the governor. This was a common practice then. They wanted to make sure they had the best person presenting their case, someone who was well-spoken, someone who had respect in other areas, and this person then would speak to the governor at this point. And the other thing that was so common, and even common today, is that they were gonna do everything they could to flatter the one who was in charge to butter themselves up to this one who would be making the decision, right? They knew that this guy held the power, so they were gonna do whatever they could to make sure they understood how much they cared for him and they flattered him. And here, the dishonesty and the hypocrisy is so strong, right? First of all, they're, they're talking about how his reforms are great and how he's brought peace and, and they're so grateful for him and they accept it. Here's the thing. The Jewish people hated the Roman oppressors and they were generally unhappy with Felix. If we read history, we just see this very clearly. Felix was a cruel and a corrupt man. In fact, eventually he'd be removed by, from his post by the next emperor who would come. And the next emperor who would come would be Nero, perhaps the most cruel and the most brutal man to ever lead, and he was the one who is removing this guy because Nero thought he was a little bit too brutal himself. A contemporary historian described Felix as a master of cruelty and lust. History reveals Felix as a scheming politician. And, and honestly, so many of the reforms that Felix brought were ultimately aimed at his own pleasure and his own gain. Second, the peace that Felix brought wasn't true peace. It wasn't a, a true peace where both sides were pleasant and happy with what was going on. No, it was, if you don't like what I have to say, then I'm gonna, quote, bulldoze over everything and everyone. That's the description used of the peace he brought, that he just bulldozed his way and brought forth a desert even so that his way would go unopposed. And that was the, quote, peace that he brought. So here's the Jewish leadership bowing down to the one that they would have considered an enemy. Why? All in an attempt to gain an unjust outcome. That's what it was all about. You've heard the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what's going on here. We're enemies of Paul, and even though this guy is an enemy, we're gonna be friends because we're wanting to work together against this guy. Strange coalitions form when people are united in working against truth and righteousness. I mean, just think about Jesus as he's standing trial before Pilate and, and you have the Jewish leaders there and they hate Jesus and they're wanting Jesus condemned. They want Jesus crucified and Pilate's trying Jesus himself. And you recall, Pilate says, I don't see anything wrong with this man. And you, you'll remember, don't you? He says to the leaders, to the Jews, this is the king of the Jews. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. Would the Jewish people ever say that faithfully? No. But they want to cozy themselves up to the political rulers of the time so they can get their way with Jesus. They can have Jesus crucified. And in, in a similar way, that's exactly what's happening here when it comes to the apostle Paul. And then in verses four through six, Tertullus slanders and maligns Paul's character. First off, they call Paul a plague. 
He's a plague. Now, when you think of the term plague, what do you think of? Most people in here are thinking of the plagues that God brought on Egypt as he frees Israel from slavery. And what do those plagues do? Well, they brought pain and they brought destruction. And and that's what they're saying who Paul is. This is who Paul is. He's a plague. Everywhere he goes, he brings pain. He brings destruction. He's not a good guy. We we don't like this guy. We should stay away from this guy. He's dangerous. We don't don't want to be around him. And, And really by getting rid of this guy, this plague, we're really saving everyone. He's a public enemy. He incites riots wherever he goes. And, and not only that, he's the ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. Now, when he says he, he refers to who Paul is and what Paul is living for and, and the way, right, Christianity, he calls it a sect. And he's trying to take out the religious aspects of things because you know, Rome doesn't really recognize the Jewish Sanhedrin as a important, an important uh, group of people. They are a religious group of people. They don't really care much about them, but they need them to help keep the peace there in Jerusalem and in Palestine. But now the Jewish leader, leadership is saying, look, we don't even really care about Paul. He's just a leader of some sect. In other words, code language, hey, Rome, you better be careful because this guy, he's leading this social group of the Nazarenes and, and they might riot. They might, they might incite violence. They may be a threat to Rome. You gotta be careful here, Felix. Do your job, Felix. On top of that, Tertullus says that he tried to profane the temple, but we stopped him. Now, let's just be honest. Felix didn't care about this. He didn't care about the Jewish rules. But the truth is, that's not what took place. That's not what was happening, and Paul is going to tell us that in a minute. But what becomes obvious is how deceptive and untrue these accusations are. Those who are apart from Christ are driven by their own passions. Whatever those passions may be, right? Materialistic, hedonistic, political, authoritarian, even religious, as we see here with the Jewish religious leaders. But when controlled by the sin nature, people resort to anything to push their agenda, to promote their ways, to get what they want. So then their lying, their slander is simply a means to an end for them. And the end they want... They want Paul gone. They want him removed from the scene. They want him dead. Friends, this is what we should expect in our world. We should expect our character to be maligned and our views to be misrepresented. You hear it every day on the news, honestly. Every day on the news, there is some Christian principle that is being attacked. We, we think about this when it comes to the fight over abortion right now. How willingly and easily those who are pro-abortion will lie about their own position and about those who are pro-life, about their position. And not only that, will, will misrepresent their position and will actually lie about what the law actually says to make it sound like they have a, a, a higher moral ground than anyone else. This happens every day on any number of topics. Church, we need to expect this. We need to expect that we will be maligned and that our position will be misrepresented. While the world claims to love tolerance, friends, that tolerance does not include issues of biblical truth, biblical morality, 
in any sense. But secondly, we should exercise wisdom and integrity before the world. We should, frankly, we must exercise wisdom and integrity before the world, right? When we expect that we will be maligned and our views will be misrepresented, then we are better prepared in moments of trial, in moments of difficulty, when it's actually happening. Do we expect it? Do we know that it's gonna come? How will we prepare for it? What will we say? How will we be ready to respond? The Apostle Peter writes about this, similar in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning of verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Friends, knowing what to expect helps us to be ready in our response. Knowing that we should expect this kind of slanderous accusation against us, our views to be misrepresented, helps us to be ready to clarify what it is we believe. And it also reminds us that how we live in front of others actually matters a lot. The key to a God-pleasing response is staying connected to the Lord, living for the Lord's glory and exercising wisdom and integrity. So Paul here heard Tertullus, and I'm sure his emotions were high, right? No one likes for their views to be misrepresented. No one. Think about the last time you were misrepresented. Think about some, the last time someone accused you of something that wasn't true or that you didn't do. Did you like it? Did it feel good? Look, this happens in my house on a regular basis. On a regular basis. Now, if someone has a sweet snack that they like and don't want anyone to eat, but somehow it goes away and it disappears, I get the blame all the time. Now, it's true that 95% of the time I'm probably guilty. But that 5%, when I'm not guilty, it doesn't feel good to be blamed for it, okay? So we understand this. We understand that we don't like to be accused. And everyone in this room has been accused unjustly. Well, notice Paul's response, verses 10 through verse 21. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, so also I take pains to have a clear conscience both toward God and man. Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. 
other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day, right? Calm, cool, collected response, right? How different this response when Paul was responding to being struck in the mouth or being command, being struck in the mouth at the command of the high priest, right? There he kind of lost it here. He just has it together. He just begins to systematically deal with everything that was said against him, both his character and against his position. So he's not engaging in flattery like the Jewish leaders. He just notes that Felix had been the judge over the territory, over the nation for a period of time, likely about five years at this point. And then he just addresses it, right? First, he says, look, I haven't even been in Jerusalem very long. You can, you can verify this. 12 days? How am I going to start such a big riot? How am I going to do all these things that they're saying? I haven't even been here but just a few days. And, and, and beyond that, no one can prove any of these claims that they're making against me. They can't do it. Let them try to do it, but they can't do it because they're not true. And frankly, rather than stirring up trouble... Rather than causing riots, I was here to present alms, gifts to my nation, and to present offerings. Remember, he was there to bring offering to the impoverished believers, the church there in Jerusalem. So no, I'm not starting up riots. I'm just doing good. I'm trying to help. I'm trying to serve. And by the way, verse 18, the real accusers, the Jews in Asia, who we've talked about multiple weeks now, they ought to be here right now. If they have an accusation to make against me, if they have something against me, then they need to be here saying it, but they're not here. And that should tell you something. And they can't show or prove anything about what they have said. Now, one thing, Paul says, is correct. I do follow God by means of the way, by means of Jesus Christ. They call this a sect, but frankly, this is actually the only acceptable way to serve and worship the one true and living God, all through Jesus Christ, the Son. He's the one the whole of the Old Testament points to. He's the one whom the law and all the prophets are speaking of, this one Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah of God, the, the Son of David who will sit on the throne of the Lord's kingdom forever. This is who I serve. And by the way, I'm on trial today. Let's just be honest, he's saying. I'm on trial today because I believe in the resurrection and because I made that comment. And, and not only that, many of you out here believe in the resurrection. Many of the Pharisees, many of you Pharisees believe in the resurrection. Now, I'm not calling you Pharisees, okay? But that's what Paul would have said. Like, even them, they believe in the resurrection. They know it's going to happen. So what's taking place? Paul's defending himself. His integrity is on display. He's, he's, he's utilizing wisdom. He's exercising wisdom as he speaks in such a way to the authorities that are there. Let's take a moment just to recognize the significance of Jesus' resurrection. So significant is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that the apostle Paul says, look, if Jesus did not raise or rise from the dead, then we all who follow Jesus, all whose trust is, is Jesus are to be pitied. Like you should feel bad for us because we are foolish if Jesus did not rise from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, we're still dead in our sin, dead in our trespass, and we have no hope of eternal life in heaven. We are still under the wrath of God. Why is that? 
Friends, it's because if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then that would mean that God did not accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in his blood to cover our sin. And if Jesus' blood cannot and does not cover our sin, then we will pay our own sin debt for eternity. But here's the good news. Jesus did rise from the dead. You know, every Jewish religious leader who was there and who was alive at the time when Jesus died and rose again would have been looking for that corpse. Every single one of them. They would have looked, the Roman government would have looked. In fact, in Matthew chapter 28, we're told that the, the, the leaders, the council of the Jews would have gone to the, they went to the Roman soldiers who were there at the tomb and bribed them to lie that the disciples came and stole the body. The same disciples who were in hiding after he was crucified, scared that the government was gonna come for them. These same disciples somehow got the courage and the strength to come to take over, uh, to, to take out the Roman guards for a period of time, to remove the stone, to steal the body, and to hide away somewhere when everyone would have been looking, but they couldn't find it. Why? Because Jesus is alive, and he's still alive. They couldn't produce the body. And friends, the church is alive. The church was born then, and the spread of the gospel around the known world continues today. A lot has changed since the day of the Apostle Paul, but many things haven't. People are still denying the resurrection, and people are still belittling those who believe in the resurrection, but the church still grows, and yes, people are still being saved, and yes, Jesus is still alive. And another thing that hasn't changed, it's that the Holy Spirit must open our eyes and soften our hearts to believe the gospel. That's what we see here. That's what we see here with the Jewish leadership. That's what we're gonna see here with Felix and Drusilla in just a moment, that they can see or hear the gospel and disbelieve. And that's because our hearts are so cold and so callous to truth and what we need is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to raise our dead hearts to give us faith to believe, to cause us to see and believe the truth of the gospel, friends. When we walk in wisdom, when our integrity is on display, we have a powerful tool before the world. That's what the Apostle Paul, that's what all of the New Testament has to say. Listen to what Peter has to say about this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, right? Exercise wisdom, integrity, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now let me just make this clear. Paul was exercising wisdom and integrity here, but that doesn't mean that everyone who saw him that day or heard him that day was going to put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. And the same is true for you. Just because you're exercising wisdom and integrity doesn't mean that everyone who sees you or hears you speak of the gospel is going to put their hope and trust in Christ. No, it takes the work of the Spirit, right? 
In fact, even what Peter says here in 1 Peter chapter 2 doesn't necessarily mean that those people are glorifying God on the day of visitation because they're trusting him. But what's happening in that moment is that they're putting two and two together. They see the way that you live, the integrity with which you live, the consistency with the gospel with which you said you believed and how you lived, and now they're glorifying God because they have no other hope because they recognize the truth even as they are judged, recognizing God's holiness. And friends, that's what's gonna happen here with these leaders who are seeking injustice, who are rebelling against God. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord even in the midst of rebellion, because it is undeniable. But friends, what we see is the way we live matters. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, yet your life is characterized by sinfulness, then do not expect people to receive your witness or to glorify God as a result of your life. So in your family, in your circle of friends, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, friends, hypocrisy will undo your witness. Hypocrisy will undo your witness. And eventually, hypocrisy will undo your life. Finally, engage in bold proclamation before the world. Engage in bold proclamation before the world. That's what we see here in verse 22 through, uh, through, the, uh, through the end of the chapter. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. So he, he's basically stalling. He's kind of kicking the can down the road. There's no evidence that Lysias, Claudius Lysias, and the Roman tribune in Jerusalem ever actually met again with, uh, with Governor Felix to talk about this very issue. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he, Paul, should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So it's very likely that Felix was allowing Paul's friends to come visit him because maybe he was supplying, they were supplying Paul with money and he wanted a bribe from Paul, maybe to get out of jail, maybe to get somewhere else, but he wanted to get out, so he kept inviting him back, wanting some money. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So it's an interesting story. It's an interesting end to this little episode here. And it will help to know that the marriage between Felix and Drusilla was anything but pure. The relationship between Felix and Drusilla was anything but pure. This was, Drus this was Drusilla's, Drusilla was Felix's third wife. And Felix was Drusilla's second husband. And it wasn't for pure reasons that they were getting uh, that they had these multiple spouses. And while Drusilla was Jewish, she wasn't a law-abiding Jew and apparently didn't put forth any illusion to make herself seem like she was concerned with being a faithful Jewish person. But they apparently wanted to hear from Paul, so they called for him and he spoke about the gospel. He spoke about faith in 
Christ. And then he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. Now, it's important to recognize here that Paul spoke about faith in Christ. He spoke about the gospel. What is the gospel? He spoke about how they were dead in their sin because of their rebellion against God, but that God so loved the world and he sent Jesus, the one and only son, to die on the cross, to live a perfect life, die on the cross for their sin, and then rise again on the third day so that anyone who will put their hope and their trust in Jesus will be saved, will be forgiven. But he didn't stop there. He continued, even with what commentator David Peterson says about genuine faith in Christ. Paul spoke about faith in Jesus and the effects that that faith would have on one's living. He argues that faith in Christ is about change in allegiance and therefore results in change in behavior and priorities, right? It's not just that we change our behavior and, our, and the way that we live and then we, we, then we get saved. No, it's that we're saved by the grace of God. We're saved by Christ and then things begin to change in our lives it's Jesus that makes us new and then our behavior and our priorities change and it's safe to say that Paul's message to Felix and Drusilla would have struck a chord right their history and their reputations make it very clear why Felix responded with such alarm that word could be translated as terrified when Paul began to speak of righteousness and self-control and coming judgment church Paul boldly proclaimed the gospel and the assumption is that he was calling people to faith and repentance. This is the boldness that we need before a lost and dying world that will stand judgment before God. And it's not just outward actions that God judges. It's our sinful thoughts. It's our sinful desires. It's our careless words. It's our rebellion against his ways. It's our rebellion against his will. But friends, don't miss this. It's not self-righteousness that leads us to proclaim Christ, to share the gospel. It is love. Because it's love that motivated God to send the Son. And it's love that motivated God to save us. We love because he first loved us. And it's love that motivates each of us to go to speak to someone else about the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Friends, on a daily basis, if you are following Christ, you will stand trial before the world. In the court of public opinion, you are standing trial. But hear this, there is a much greater trial that everyone will face as we stand before God's judgment. And the sad thing is, many here today will not tremble at God's word. The sad thing is that many people who hear God's word today will not be alarmed at the mention of coming judgment. You'll go on with life as if there is nothing to worry about, no threat, no concern at all. Now, some of you may be alarmed, but like Felix, you won't repent of sin. You won't turn to Christ and put your faith in him. There'll be no lasting change, just a fleeting concern. Don't walk away. Don't walk away. But perhaps some of you here this morning will recognize your situation. Will recognize that there is a God who is holy and a God who is just. And there is a God who is loving and gracious, who has poured out his love in the Son. Perhaps that's you. Today, friend, 
Would you recognize your sin? Would you put your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again for you? The one whose death, whose life and death has defeated sin and who offers reconciliation and forgiveness to you. If you have questions in, a time, in just a few moments, we're gonna have a time of surrender and we would love for you to come and ask us questions about the gospel or how you can know eternal life. Maybe there's some in this room who are ready to be baptized. You put your hope in Christ and you wanna share with the church that you're ready to be baptized. Perhaps there's others of you in this room who just want prayer. Maybe you wanna pray right where you are with your family or maybe you would love to pray with one of our staff members. We would love to connect with you and serve you and love you in that way. God is doing something in this room and in your life. What is it? And will you respond in faithfulness? Let's pray together and then we'll sing. Lord, you're good to us. And we love you and we thank you for these moments together. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, who though he stood trial and suffered injustice, he trusted you. And he sought to love others to Christ. God, don't let us miss that. Don't let us miss that our only hope and the world's only hope is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Do your work in us now, we pray. Amen. Would you stand and would you sing?